to surrender these what should it look at like? the foot well, of the throne. Well, I'm not sure what it looks like. We have two men in our church who are, our who are fine New Yorkers, but really come. they hail from the city of Chicago. Uh, Peter Brown and Mike Devine, they are, they are Chicagoans. And do you know what they do at Chicago Blackhawks games in Chicago? If you would, during the singing of the national anthem, let's start halfway through the national anthem. This is how they sing the national anthem and fulfill their patriotic joy and their love of the sport in Chicago. Wes, do you have that for us? Here we go. Let's see if we can get some... blue-collar guy that they love in Chicago. He goes home from work, puts on a suit, and shows up at the Blackhawks Stadium. And the entire stadium stands and cheers. Young and old. Listen again to Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over the nations. His glory above the heavens Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops to look down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. At the North Shore Community Church, we have 12 core values that we say we want woven into the DNA of our church. And right at the top is the worship of God is our delight. So if you're going to be a part of our church family, and I hope you are a part of our church family, then you need to know that the worship of God is delightful for us. Yes, you may not be standing and cheering and screaming all the time. In fact, we like to do things as the, as the, as the uh, book of 1 Corinthians says, decently and in order. And, and yet, and yet, let every heart swell with joy as we meet the Lord. About a year ago in our own worship services, we changed things just a little bit, and maybe I, I never fully explained it. We used to have what's commonly called the call to worship right in the beginning before we sang any song. What we decided to do was to always have one, and we call it an assembling song. And that's for people who are still making their way up from 
Sunday school downstairs and who are running in from the parking lot just a little bit late. And, and the assembling song actually has its roots in the Psalms itself because when people would go to Jerusalem for the, for the uh, high holidays, they would, you know, the roads would converge and people would be singing as they went to Jerusalem. And, and when you came to an intersection and you joined the others, then you joined in the song as you saw Jerusalem over the hill. So, so we start this one song, but then when that song is over, we have what is called the stated call to worship by the elders of the church delegated to a leader, uh, a lead worshiper on our team, and it's their duty to then say to the church, come, let us worship the Lord. And in this text, let me just remind you a little bit of grammar. In this text, the halal, the hallelujah, halal means, halalu means to praise, and yah is short for Yahweh. Praise the Lord is in the imperative mood, which means it is a suggestion. Remember your grammar from fourth grade? What is an imperative? It's a command. And it is as though the psalmist right here is looking out at the people and he knows it's time and he says, you, you over there, you, get up on your feet and open your mouth and join us in praise to the Lord. Now, we would never use the sword to make you do that. You know, there, 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 are, there, there were times in the history of Christianity when armies would march and they'd get out the sword and they'd make people get baptized with the sword. You know, remember Rus, the king of Russia? You know, they, they kind of did. That was a mistake. We don't do that. But it is an imperative, a command to the whole earth. Rise and praise the Lord. There's this holy urgency. Do you see? Do you, do you feel that? Because God is worthy of our praise. Now, now, if you're new to the things of Christianity, you might say, well, why does the Bible always tell us that God wants praise? Isn't that a little vain? Well, you're in good company. C.S. Lewis says that before he was a Christian, before he was a Christian, he was annoyed with God for wanting praise because he thought God must be a little egotistical. But after he was a Christian, he came to understand that he was very close to blasphemy. Because, he says, a Christian has their eyes opened to the majesty of God. And that whenever you have an impulse inside of you to praise anything, that impulse comes because it is praiseworthy. If someone invites you to their home and they prepare a delicious meal for you and you enjoy it, what do you do? You praise the host and you say, thank you, that was fantastic. And if you go to a concert and you hear the orchestra and, and it's this magnificent piece is played before your ears and what happens to the people? They rise in a standing ovation just as uh, our sports fans did or our patriots did in the uh, Star Spangled Banner in Chicago. They rise to their feet because there is a sense of devotion and good pleasure 
in the beauty and the glory of what they've heard or seen or experienced. And C.S. Lewis says that the highest good and the greatest glory is God himself. And so there is no other choice. When you see, when you have eyes to see, there's no other choice when you have ears and ears to hear. And we are drawn like iron filings are drawn to a magnet. We are drawn to God. And we worship Him. You're not just invited, it's a command. But notice it's also perpetual and continual. And there is this hint that throughout your day, from morning when the sun rises until evening, there should be this cycling through your day praise to the Lord. It's not just Sunday. It's not just first thing in the morning. And so some of us need to rethink how we do life. It's really true. Some of us need to rethink how we do life because life should be lived constantly cycling back to praise to God. And I don't know what it is, but, you know, sometimes I just get in the car and when I turn on my car and that combustion engine roars to life and this, you know, five-ton vehicle moves down the road, uh, I'm just amazed. And I say, praise the Lord. Thank you for this gift. My grandparents, my great-grandparents could never have imagined this. You cycle through the day and you have a meal and you stop and you thank God for his provision. You have an opportunity to touch, encourage, bless somebody. You thank him. Or even as you do your work, you do your work unto the Lord. You do it as a blessing in this world and you do it for the praise of God. It's perpetual and apparently it's eternal. It's going to happen now and forever. Do you see those phrases in the text? Now and forever. And so you get a picture that this is preparation for heaven. One more quote from C.S. Lewis. He says that, um, that our praise now, as wonderful as our band and our musical presence is, he says our praise is to our praise in heaven as the orchestra tuning up before the concert is to the concerto itself. And yet, you know, there's something exciting about when the orchestra tunes up. At least for me, if you've been to an orchestra concert, and now everybody gets in there, and they sit down, and they're tuning, and they're, they're warming up, and then all of a sudden you hear one or two of them play a, a couple of phrases, and you get a hint of what the, what the piece is going to present to you, and you get ready to hear it. That's, what, that's sort of where we are now, Sunday after Sunday. But when Jesus Christ comes again, when we are ushered into heaven, when we are glorified, the great, true concert will begin. And we will be tuned. We will be ready. Remember the hymn? It says, you, it's a prayer to God. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Don't you love that old hymn? You're prone to wander, Lord. But, but no, no, no. Tune my heart to sing your praise. So it's perpetual not just when we feel like it. It's eternal. And then the psalmist tells us why. 
And in the remaining verses of the psalm, in verses 4 through 6, he says, let me tell you why we praise. We praise because God is glorious in his majesty. And then in verses 7 through 9, because God is glorious in his mercy. And it's quite powerful. It's a powerful contrast for you and for me. The Bible tells us God is glorious in his majesty. He is glorious in his mercy. And if you have experienced his majesty, if you have experienced his mercy, then you know what I'm talking about. It tells us three things in these verses 4 through 6 about the majesty of God. It tells us that he is exalted in verse 4. It tells us he is exceptional in verse 5. And it tells us he is extraordinary in verse 6. And they're all just a little different. In verse 4, it says he is exalted over the nations, and then he's exalted over the heavens. And what the picture is here for you and for me is to understand that though you may be impressed with the armies of the world, and so you've seen those newsreels of the Kremlin, you know when the armies march in front of the Kremlin and the Politburo stood up there as children we used to see these and the tanks go by. Or some, uh, when the United States Army marches down and uh, you see the tanks and the soldiers going by and there's a sense of power. And you see it in Red Square or you see it in China. It says in Isaiah chapter 40, The nations are as a drop in the bucket to the Lord. Do you understand this? The United Nations, in all of its, its uh, a political a sway, the nations come together. But the Lord is over the nations. In fact, we are told of Jesus Christ, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that does not just mean He's the best of the kings or uh, uh, the, the foremost among the lords. It means He's the King of the kings. He's the Lord of the lords. The Lord is exalted over the nations. He rules all things. He will bring it to its consummation. He rules over history. But then, the psalmist, the psalmist takes us to school. And he says he is Lord over the heavens. And that he's enthroned on high. And you know, in, in our uh, senior high discussions occasionally uh, we've invited Charles and Martin and myself to come talk to the the young people about the questions that they're going to face when they get off into college and and sometimes we teach them big words like theology and cosmology and metaphysics and we explain to them that the philosophers of this world have opinions about God. They have their own theology. And the philosophers of this world, they have a, 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 a what's called metaphysics. That is to say, what is real? Is this universe only material? Is the universe only atoms and particles and dust? Or is there a spiritual reality? These are the metaphysical questions that Plato and Aristotle all wrestled with, you know, and you take philosophy 101 when you go to college, and what, what, what is real in the world? And then there's the question of the cosmos, what they call cosmology, and the study of how is this, how is this universe arranged? And you know, 
Psalm 113, right here, it tells us that the Lord is enthroned on high over the heavens. And this teaches us, not, he's not just greater than the armies, the armadas that sail and the armies that march. He is on high over the universe. Over the heavens. The Bible teaches there's the, God created the heavens and the earth, but it also teaches there's the highest heavens. And the highest heavens are where God dwells. And from there, it says, he has to stoop. He has to bend way over. God has to bend way down to look at our universe. And that's just a way of saying he is so exalted, even over the universe. Somebody says, well, where is that? Where is that? Because our Hubble telescope hasn't shown it to us yet. Hubble telescope has shown us the, the, the heavens here. Where is it? How far away is it? Because if God has to stoop to look down, it must be very far away. And yet the Bible also teaches us that it's really close. It's really close. Where do we learn that in the Bible? Do you know where we learn in the Bible that the highest heavens, that, that glorious uh, expanse of the infinity of God is so close? Do you guys remember the story of Jacob's ladder? Remember the story of Jacob's ladder where Jacob, this night, falls asleep and then there's this ladder and there are angels ascending and descending from heaven? And that ladder, to use modern science fiction parlance, that ladder is like a portal. It's like a portal into the highest heavens. The book of Acts says he is near to every one of us. Where is that nearness? It is in a dimension outside or beyond our heavens and the earth, but it's very close. It's just a ladder away. It's there, right there. In fact, then in the coming of Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a minute, it breaks into this world. And by the giving of the Holy Spirit, there's an intrusion of the highest heavens into our lives and into this world. And it mixes up. Well, I'm just telling you, we love those conversations with the senior high kids. You'd probably like to be there because you would learn a lot. You see, the Lord is exalted. Not just over the nations, but over the heavens. And he looks down on the earth. He's exalted. That's why we praise him. He is exceptional. So the psalmist then suddenly says, Who is like the Lord our God? And he invites comparison. So who would you like to name who you think is like the Lord our God? Is there, a, is there a deity somewhere else that you would like to compare? Or is there a, somebody here on earth you would like to compare to the Lord our God? You know, Abraham Lincoln, um, Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin... George Washington, or some great poet, Walt Whitman, who stirs us with his poetry. Zeus, or uh, of the Greek gods, or Jupiter, of the Roman gods. To whom will you compare the Lord our God? See, you can ask, where are the dead and forgotten gods of Egypt and Greece and Rome? 
Well, where did they come from? The Bible teaches us, and John Calvin says it very well. He says that all people are superstitious. All people are superstitious. All people have this inherent religiosity because there is a God, uh, but they don't know the living and true God, so we manufacture idols. Our hearts are, are idol factories, I-D-O-L, idol factories. Your heart is, my heart is, and superstitions just naturally emerge. I was riding up to the Poconos with three, uh, three of the middle school guys. We had the best time. And we, we spent like an hour and a half just talking about what's superstition and what's real. What's superstition and what's real? It was very interesting. And they had good insights into what the Bible teaches us about what is superstition and why Christians really should avoid superstitions and what is real, what is a real article of faith that in space and time and in the Christian life is true. And it was delightful to be with them. Who is like him? The false deities, the exalted people will fade away. There are false, false gods. You know, sometimes I quote uh, Richard Dawkins, the great atheist. Dawkins loves to hammer against religious people. He can't stand them. Fools them all. And, and the reason Dawkins doesn't like religious people is because he says, do you really believe in Zeus who's up there holding a thunderbolt? You don't really believe there's some ghost-like figure holding a thunderbolt, do you? And so Dawkins understands that mankind is inherently superstitious and will create mythologies to make sense out of life. And he's right. Here, did you hear me say that? Richard Dawkins is right. About the inherently idol manufacturing human heart and the superstitions of mankind. He's right. But I would also say to him, Professor Dawkins, just because men are superstitious does not mean that there is no living and true God, the creator of the universe who rules over the nations and who is exalted above the heavens. To the contrary, all of creation cries out, there is a God, and He is great and glorious and worthy of praise. He is exceptional. There's no one like Him. And then one commentator says He's extraordinary in verse 6, where it begins to talk about how this infinite, eternal, amazing, transcendent God comes close and observes everything speaks of the omniscience of God, that God knows all things. Why do you worship God? Because you gasp when you realize that his eyes run to and fro over the earth. You know the Old Testament phrase, his eyes run to and fro over the earth. He sees everything. You know, the, one of the hot jobs in the next decade is what's going to be called data mining. Some of your sons and daughters may get into computer work where they're going to do data mining. Data mining is, is, is following every keystroke on every computer, right, out there. And somebody gathers all that information and sells the data in order to promote more sales for some other company. And, and there are these super-duper computers that are able to, to handle all this data by the trillions. But 
The Bible tells us of our God. He stoops and he looks and he sees everything on the earth. Jesus taught us this. Remember where Jesus said his eye is on the sparrow. Ever see a magnificent flock of sparrows? His eye is on every one of them. Every hair on every head is numbered by God Almighty. Who is like him? This is extraordinary. And so we praise him for his majesty. Are you slow to miss his majesty? I'm going to pray at the end of our sermon that God will open our eyes this week to his majesty and bring you up short, make you breathless at the majesty of God. But then what follows is something utterly remarkable. Not only does he look down on the earth, even more amazing, he visits the earth. And he reaches down into the mess of this earth. What do you have here? You have here the Christmas story, don't you? You have here the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our God is the, is the visiting God. Our God is the God who reaches down and who lifts up. And his mercy does precisely that. It reaches down to us and it lifts us up. This is so wonderful. Have you experienced the grace of his reaching down? Do you have this understanding? We, we come to that Philippians 2 passage. Do you know this? It's on the back of your sermon outline. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what we have pictured in Psalm 113 is this person destitute on the ash heap. Do you know the ash heap outside the city? It's the junkyard. It's the junkyard where the fire burns and the poor goes there to be warm. Last night, we went to the bonfire to get warm. But in the ancient world, the smoldering junk heap, junkyard, though it stunk and was, was the, the place of poverty, nonetheless, it was a place where you could survive the cold. And you have this, these two pictures. The destitute person who lives in the junkyard and the barren woman. And the barren woman, it's, it's not a sin to not have children. This is a reference to the great problem of the ancient world, which is what happens to you if you have no children and then you get old? What happens to you? There was no social security. There was no social estate. And this barren woman was doomed so she is destitute now and has no hope for the future. And what God does is he is magnificent in his mercy. He reaches down and he comes. And it's this foreshadowing, isn't it? This is foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to take on skin, to identify with sinners, 
to identify with the poor. He had nowhere to lay his head. He had nothing. And he took our sins, our wretchedness upon himself. This is what our God does. This is why we worship him. Magnificent in his mercy, in his reaching down. But it doesn't stop there. Because he comes to this woman and he lifts her up in her poverty and he seats her with princes. And some of you know, some of you know your Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, who was the mother of Samuel? Does anyone remember her name? Her name was Hannah. And Hannah sings this song because Hannah was barren. Hannah was without hope. And it says, she's, she says all these things about God in praise. They are striking. She says, yes, uh, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. He sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Yes, God is sovereign over the affairs of man. But then she says in verse 8, our verse, that the psalmist has picked up on, that he hears echoing in his mind of God. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. And all I'll tell you is read the book of Revelation chapter 5. When the great song of heaven, the new song erupts, and they say, Thou art worthy, for with your blood, what did you do? You purchased men, women, and children for God. With your blood you purchased men for God, and you made them to be kings and priests to serve our God. And the destiny of every Christian is not to be in the ash heap, but we have been raised up with Christ and been made royalty. We don't preach on this enough. Our royal place as Christians. But Paul says this. Do you know Ephesians 2 verse 6? Do you know this verse? It's in, in the bottom of your uh, sermon outline in the back page. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. What are we worshiping him for? What are we praising for? For his mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And sometimes we stop there. Because we love grace so much. But look at the next verse. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. If you're united to Jesus Christ, it is a spiritual reality, but it is real. You are with Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Wow. And he cancels out your past. You see this in verse 8. Because this woman is of no repute. And she has no money. Okay? Got no reputation. She got no money. Nothing to make her special that, that God should pay any attention to her. And yet he forgets her past. And you read the Bible. You, some of you are reading through the Bible. Pay attention to how he lifts people up. Gideon is on the threshing floor just beating the the wheat, and he becomes the judge of Israel. Saul is behind the donkeys and becomes the king of the nation. David is tending sheep. Scorned by his brothers. And he becomes the man after God's own heart and the king of Israel. The apostles are lifted up from their fishing nets 
and become the team that changed the world and turned it upside down. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins have been raised up with Christ Jesus. Wow. That's why we praise Him. And I don't know what your problems are. I don't know what they are. But when you walk with Jesus Christ, you're in a financial mess because you've made some horrible mistakes. You never thought, it never occurred to you to see what the Bible says about how to handle your finances. And you rearrange your life and you begin to walk with Christ. And, you, and He lifts you up. You struggle in your marriage. And it never occurred to you that in your marriage you should actually study how to love and forgive and help and get along with the other person. And, and you begin to do that in your marriage. And He lifts you up. And goes on and on. He lifts us up. That's why we had Lisa sing that song, I will rise. I rise in Him. He lifts us up. And the New Testament constantly says you need to praise Him for His majesty. Praise Him for His mercy perpetually and continually. I was haunted this week. I was haunted this week by that Supreme Court ruling. Did any of you hear about this? The Supreme Court nine to nothing ruled against the current administration. The current administration was supporting someone who uh, said that the church had no right to fire a minister. Some argument. I, you guys have the right eventually somehow to get rid of me. But this, the case was presented by the current administration and it was an intrusion somehow to control and to shut down the rightful work of the church within her, her own proper sphere. And praise God for these nine justices on both sides. They all said, this is nuts, administration. Stop it. But why is it that the first thing the communists did when they seized power was to shut down churches. Why did, when ancient Babylon cast Israel into captivity, did they mock their God and force them to sing the pagan songs to shut down their worship? Why did Hitler want to shut down the churches? Because to acknowledge praise to God was to admit their own defeat. But the church, wasn't there an old hymn that says, The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend. We will never stop singing his praise. Peter's in prison, chained to the wall. What was he doing? Do you remember? Singing praises to God. They couldn't shut him up, and they won't shut you up. I know it. They will not shut you up. You who belong to Jesus Christ. You say, oh, my faith is weak. Yeah, I know, but I know that Holy Spirit's in you. And when you are tested, you won't stop. You will sing His praises. Do you understand? Martin said it last week. He was quoting me. Why don't we have a choir, a formal choir in this church? Remember why? Because we are the choir. We are the choir. And nothing's going to stop us from singing His praises. Today, what do you need? I'm going to invite you to let God do some business with you. 
Do you need more of an eye for his majesty? To experience his majesty? I invite you to ask him to do that. Do you need more of an experience of his mercy? Of just his reaching down to you and into the muck and mess of your life and just say, Jesus, are you really here with me? Are my sins really forgiven? Do you need to have that sense of being lifted up? Lift me up. Show me the princes among whom I sit and the princesses. Show me. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. For we are coming, and bow your heads, we are coming to the one before whom every knee will bow, this one who humbled himself, who took on human flesh, Jesus Christ, before whom every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So would you talk to God right now in the quietness of your own heart and tell him, I need more of a sense of your majesty. I need more experience of your mercy. I need my tongue loosened to speak my thanks and my praise to you.